on a mission. It's a mission to turn our world upside down. That happens when people hear the good news of Jesus. So get ready for God to turn you upside down. The coming of Jesus into our world has changed history. How is that? Well, first of all, Jesus has changed history by changing people. Lots of people in our world today. They say at least one billion people claim to be following Jesus. In fact, others estimate it's up to two billion people in our world today who are following Jesus. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably one of those who's been changed by Jesus. Jesus has changed history by changing so many, many people in the world, not only today, but throughout the world's history. Jesus has transformed our sense of self, our sense of self in relationship to God and to others. God has changed our purpose in life, our our meaning for living, and what even lies beyond this life. Jesus also has changed our relationships. He's transformed our experiences of friendship and of marriage, of family, and of community. Jesus has changed our social structures and, and even our culture. He's transformed our basic principles about human rights and social justice and about how we care for the weak and vulnerable in our societies. Many scholars and historians have written extensively about how the Bible and the biblical teachings about Jesus changed the countries of Europe. Jesus and biblical teachings, for example, have laid the foundation for human rights and even for the overall concept of democracy the fact that individuals have value and worth in the sight of God. A direct line can be drawn from biblical teachings to principles of of basic economics, including principles of hard work with honest pay, with employers who treat their employees well, about fair trade and commerce. You see, it's not just Jesus or isolated beliefs about him. But it's the whole sweep of God's redemptive plan, starting with God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, to send Jesus as Messiah and all the laws that he gave to Israel, many of which form something of the law even yet today, as interpreted and fulfilled in Jesus. The whole sweep of God's redemptive plan from ancient days to God's plan for the church in the days of the first century of the Roman, uh, 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 the first century of, of human history, first century AD. God's plan for the church is not just about spiritual matters. But if you read the books of the New Testament, the, the letters of Paul in particular, you'll see that they cover teachings about all kinds of parts of, of regular life. Interactions in our ordinary world, including matters of marriage and child raising and working and and justice and and all the rest. Indeed, Jesus, who encapsulates the whole of biblical teaching, has changed people and nations. He's changed our world. Let me turn to the New Testament book of Acts. You probably know that book. Most of the book of Acts gives an account of the missionary travels of the Apostle Paul. Paul was directly commissioned by Jesus to be a missionary, that is, someone sent out by Jesus, and also sent out by Jesus' churches to be preaching and teaching about him. So Paul went out on his mission. He traveled by ship, usually. 
He visited many towns and cities all around the coastal lands of the Mediterranean Sea. We read in Acts chapter 17 that he and his missionary companion Silas arrive at the city of Thessalonica. Their typical practice was to go first to the local Jewish synagogue. So that's where they go. Paul and Silas speak there about Jesus, explaining to the Jewish worshipers how Jesus is actually the promised Jewish Messiah. And we read in verse 4 of Acts 17 that some of the Jews in that synagogue came to faith in Jesus. They received him as their promised Messiah. And we read some Gentiles, non-Jews, also came to faith in Jesus. However, the majority of the Jews in that synagogue and in that city don't believe. Instead, we read they, they form a mob of people to go out and try to capture Paul and Silas. That mob swarms the home of a man named Jason. Paul and Silas were staying in Jason's home. Not finding them there, they then drag Jason and some of his friends before the city officials, and they make this accusation against Paul and Silas, quote, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. They've come here to Thessalonica. These men, they say, have turned the world upside down. That's verse 6 of Acts 17. That's the translation in the English Standard Version. Those missionaries, Paul and Silas, in their message about Jesus, were turning the world upside down. Now, a word is used in that phrase in the original Greek. It's a very interesting word. The, the root of that word, the verb, meaning to turn things upside down, is the root staso. And the noun is stasis. In Latin, it's status, your status. Status or stasis literally means a standing or a, a set position or a regular and usual condition. We use the word status today. For example, people can refer to another person's social status. They're referring to someone's standing relative to others in a society. A person can have a higher status or a lower status in society, a higher standing or a lower standing. We also use that word status in the expression status quo. To keep the status quo means to maintain the same position the same condition, letting things stand as they are, not changing anything. So in that word, in verse 6 of Acts 17, a prefix is added. And that prefix means actually a reversal, a, a reversal of status, a reversal of ordinary things the way they stand. Something is upturned or reversed or turned upside down. That's the accusation of that mob as they speak to the city authorities. That Paul and Silas, with their gospel message about Jesus, are turning their world, the world of Thessalonica and other cities in the area, they've no doubt received reports. They're turning their world upside down. When you think about it, it's actually an accusation against Jesus himself, isn't it? About Jesus' life and his atoning death on the cross about his bodily resurrection from the dead and about people needing to put their trust in this Jesus to be saved from their sins. And Jesus then also transforming people by his powerful grace and by his Holy Spirit and he becoming their Savior and Lord. That message, that message of Jesus is causing the old order of things to be overturned. 
No longer can things be status quo. No, with the gospel, with Jesus, the whole order of things has been changed, turned upside down. Now, it's something that is actually very upsetting, isn't it? To have your world or or the reality that you've experienced from birth, your surrounding culture, to have that all turned upside down. It's something quite upsetting. And think about that word. Interesting, isn't it? Upsetting. Something is set, say, in our minds. Something has been set in our lives. Something was set in the life of the city of Thessalonica. A certain order was set. But now with Jesus, things are upset. Get it? They're they're, they're turned upside down. And things that are upset when culture and society and your friends and family are upset, turned upside down, then other people often become emotionally upset. And so it was for many people in Thessalonica. So much so that they formed a mob and and tried to grab Paul and Silas. Now, from our perspective, from our perspective, for Jesus to turn something upside down actually means it's something good, something positive. Think of it. When something is the wrong way up, then a reversal is actually something good. It's a change for the better, not for the worse. And so it is with the true gospel, the good news of Jesus. That good news of Jesus is overturning the old order of things. The old belief system and value system and worldview, everything that we once accepted as as ordinary, as the order of things, that's all turned upside down. When people come to trust in Jesus, their whole life is turned around. I've seen it time and time again. It's such a radical upturning that that the Bible refers to it as as being born again. That's what Jesus calls it to Nicodemus. You have to be born again. A complete transformation like it's a, a new birth, a whole new birth. The New Testament says that when we're born again by a work of Jesus' Holy Spirit, we actually become a, a new self, a, a new being. We are given, the Bible says, a a new heart. As we learn about Jesus, we start to see things with new eyes. We hear things with new ears. We, we perceive things in our reality around us with a new mind. The Apostle Paul words it this way in one of his letters to one of the churches, quote, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. A new creation. As people are changed by the gospel, as people are transformed by Jesus, and they in turn transform their family and their community. They help to transform their friends and even their society and culture round about. In fact, people turned upside down help turn the world upside down. It's in John chapter 3, we read how Jesus encountered a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is formally educated in the Jewish scriptures. He's part of that ruling body of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers. He comes to Jesus at night and, and Jesus speaks to him. And Jesus says, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't 
know these things? Jesus had been talking to him about the need for a, for a new birth. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And he says later, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Nicodemus didn't need a fleshly rebirth, a physical being born again. He needed a spiritually being born again. He needed a birth of the Holy Spirit. And all of us need that at one time or another in our lives. We need that inner change with our heart, our mind, our thinking transformed by Jesus and by his Holy Spirit. Now, we're initially made new. We're initially turned upside down in our conversion, that is, in our originally coming to saving faith in Jesus. The Bible says we're then given a new status before God. There you have it, status or stasis. We used to be unrighteous. That was our old stasis, our old status, unrighteous before God in ourselves. But when we trust in Jesus with saving faith, we're then credited with the very righteousness of Jesus. And that gives us a whole new status, a whole new status, a whole new stasis before God. We now have a righteous standing before him. In theology, that's called justification. You know that word if you've listened to previous podcasts, justification. And then the New Testament goes on to explain that once we're justified, then things start to change in us in other ways as the Spirit fills us increasingly. We're changed in practical and experiential ways. And theologically, this is called our sanctification. Our sanctification. Our thoughts and attitudes, our words and deeds increasingly become transformed. Not all at once. No, it's more of a a process, a, a truly lifelong process. As we learn more about Jesus, as we're filled more with the Holy Spirit, we become more godly, more Christ-like. Now, all of this, I can tell you, can be very threatening to people around us <clears throat> and to the society around us. It can be very threatening to those who don't yet know Jesus or understand about him or, or don't really trust in him. I've seen it again and again. When someone becomes a follower of Jesus and they're the only follower of Jesus in their biological family, things no longer stay the same in that family. The old family order, the family stasis, is changed. And it's quite common for that believer in that family to be misunderstood by them. They can even become angry at times. And their old friends, they, they look at that new believer who used to be their close friend, and now he isn't going along with the things he used to go along with. That new believer is going to have a new set of values. He or she is going to have a, a new purpose in life. They're going to find meaning in things they didn't find meaningful before. To other family members and to old friends, that seems a bit upside down, and that often calls some very upset feelings. And so it was there in that city of Thessalonica with Paul and Silas. Many of the Jews were upset. They saw their old friends, fellow Jews, now believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And many Gentiles were upset, finding their neighbors and, and, and family members and fellow citizens no longer believing in the old Roman gods. And it's important to realize that in the Roman Empire, those gods were regarded as foundational to society, as, as being part of the very bedrock of, of good order in the society. 
And the next centuries, the next 200, 300 years, the followers of Jesus were regularly regarded as a threat to Rome. Certain Roman emperors especially persecuted the Jesus people. Thousands upon thousands of believers lost their lives. And the same happened later in in the history of Europe as the first missionaries were sent into areas which today we refer to as the nations of France and Germany and England. Depending on the area and the particular tribe of people, some of the early missionaries were killed or were thrown out or, or suffered greatly in their lives. Why? Because they were simply bringing the good news of Jesus. And that was a threat. They were telling the people groups that they should no longer believe in their ancient gods, but look to Jesus as God, at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God, triune. Today, I think we're starting to see increasing anger against followers of Jesus. Anger and sometimes even hatred. It's been happening quite quickly, it seems, in these past few years, especially in Europe and in North America. You know, just 30, 40 years ago, if you were a believer, if you attended the local Christian church, well, society viewed that as a a good thing, as really a good thing for you and even for the community. But in our world today, it's, it's perceived in such a different way. Recent headlines in the media are blaring it out. Believers, according to the media, are hate-filled people. Believers are said to hate gays, to hate trans people, to hate immigrants, to hate those who've had abortions, and so it goes on. In reality, that's not true. The vast majority of believers that I know love their neighbors, no matter who they are or what they are. But here's the irony. Often we believers are said to be hate-filled simply because we disagree with the values of modern society. Simply because we disagree with the morality that our society has adapted, that for that reason alone, we're viewed as haters. We're said to be haters because we disagree on these things. Well, if that's the criteria for whether you're hating or loving, then almost everyone is a hater, aren't they? those on the left as well as those on the right, because everyone holds certain moral opinions. To hold certain moral opinion does not in itself make you a hater. It does not make you hate-filled. So the headlines have it wrong. Oh, there are some believers, let's admit it, who are acting in wrong ways. They're not speaking as Jesus would have us speak. And yes, there can be some who consider themselves believers, but who are haters. Well, if you look at Acts chapter 17, you see something very interesting. That angry mob, that mob that rushes out to try to grab Paul and Silas, how are they acting in their society, in the city of Thessalonica? Who was it that stirred up that mob of angry people? It was those who didn't believe in Jesus. Who was it that broke into the home of Jason? Who was it who grabbed Jason and some of others and hauled them in front of the city officials? It wasn't the followers of Jesus. In fact, almost anywhere you look at those who've been truly turned upside down by Jesus, they're usually not angry people. They're usually not forming angry mobs to go out and violate people's property rights or to violate their freedom of speech. Oh, there can be exceptions, but for the majority, the vast majority, that's not the way followers of Jesus act. 
instead of, of thinking of that, just, just reflect for a moment, and this is often not highlighted in the media, in the, in the past century and even up to our own day, think of how many followers of Jesus lead the way in social justice. Believers and churches have led the way, for example, in setting up truth and reconciliation tribunals in many countries where there's been civil war. Tribunals that promote understanding and reconciliation between those who used to be enemies, as well as promoting justice. Think of how followers of Jesus have been at the forefront of setting up downtown missions with a concern for the homeless, helping them, giving them a place to sleep at night, giving them a free meal. Think of how churches and believers today have opened food banks for those who who can't afford groceries. How churches will willingly open up their buildings for AA groups and celebrate recovery groups and will minister to those struggling with addictions. Starting in the mid-19th century and continuing to this day, Followers of Jesus have been establishing schools and hospitals and free medical care in dozens of countries around the world, and that work continues to this very day. The point is simply this. Jesus and those sincerely following Jesus are still turning the world upside down. It starts, of course, on a personal level, with each person being turned upside down, being born again, converted, trusting in Jesus, justified, credited with Jesus' righteousness. And that's followed as believers become more and more godly and Christ-like, being transformed through that lifelong process of sanctification. And then usually groups of believers and churches and Christian organizations go out and positively impact society and the culture roundabout and the social structures of society, bringing justice and compassion and mercy and goodness. Well, we hope, we hope that what was said of Paul and Silas can also be said about us today, about all followers of Jesus, that we are part of turning our world, our modern world, upside down. And that's also our continuing mission here at this podcast. We call it Mission Upside Down. It's where we get our name from Acts 17, verse 6. How the good news of Jesus turns us, and through us, by God's help, turns our society upside down, transforming the old order of things, the old way of thinking, the old way of doing, the old way of helping others. Everything is upside down through Jesus. That is our continuing mission on this podcast. No, don't misunderstand. We're not a mission in the sense of us being official official missionaries. We're not missionaries officially sent out to preach or to proclaim the good news of Jesus. But we do have a mission in a general sense. A mission to help others understand about Jesus and to better understand the basic teachings of the Bible as the Bible speaks of Jesus and that from out of a better biblical understanding, we may learn to love Jesus more and follow him more closely. And in that also, we want to have an impact on our world. We're trying to do our part, a very small part admittedly, in turning our world upside down. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Randall. This podcast is produced by my brothers in Christ, Dennis and Moses. Won't you tell your friends about us? We're Mission Upside Down.
Thank you.